when we're outside, our task-oriented brain, our frontal cortex is getting a little bit of a break, you know, just like an overused muscle. And then when we go back to these cognitive tasks, you know, we're just refreshed and we're sharper. I'm Jocelyn K. Gly, and this is Hurry Slowly, a podcast about pacing yourself, where I explore how you can avoid burnout, improve your productivity, and activate your creative mind all through the simple act of slowing down. Today I'm taking a deep dive into the seemingly endless benefits of spending time in parks, green spaces, and nature with a capital N. My guide is Florence Williams, who's a contributing editor at Outside Magazine and the author of the wonderful book, The Nature Fix, why nature makes us happier, healthier, and more creative. Nature is a subject that is near and dear to my heart. Though I've lived in New York City for the past 12 years, with two failed attempts to escape, I spent nearly all of my waking moments up until age six playing in the woods of rural Virginia. I am literally up in a tree in almost every photo that exists of me as a child. And as someone who loves the pulse of the city as an adult, I've always been conflicted about how to make sure I'm also getting adequate doses of nature. Trails and trees and hikes feel vital to me, but it can be hard to find time for those spaces when you live in an urban environment. That said, when you do, the benefits are exponential. Nature really is the best medicine. And in this conversation with Florence, we dig into the science behind why. Looking at the latest research from all over the world about how spending more time in nature can sharpen your memory, increase your creativity, lower your stress levels, and even counteract negative thought loops. We also talk about the science of awe, the Japanese art of forest bathing, and something called the nature pyramid, which is sort of like the food pyramid, but for greenery. Let's dive in. So you note in The Nature Fix that humans officially became an urban species in 2008 because for the first time, more people around the world are now living in urban areas rather than rural ones. Can you talk about the impact that living in cities has on people's moods and their health? Yeah, sure. I, I do. I, I feel like we are living in kind of the largest mass migration, really, in human history, and it's the migration to cities. Um, as you point out, more of us live in cities than live outside of them. And it's something that's happened, I think, without a lot of commentary, you know, or insight as to as to really what it means for our kind of emotional and psychological states. Uh, and, and the research is kind of disconcerting on this. I mean, we know from research in Europe that people who live in cities are more likely to suffer from mental health illness. Um, for example, schizophrenia, anxiety, depression. Um, I mean, the good news is that if you live in a city, you're more likely to get treated for those problems. I mean, you know, medical care tends to be better in urban areas. Um, a lot of things are better in urban areas. I mean, education for women, for example, um, gender opportunities, um, you know, job opportunities. And yet I think it's gone largely unremarked upon the toll that this might take, you know, on us emotionally. It's kind of a, a big experiment, you know, having humans living in close quarters together um, often in kind of um, lonely living situations, even though it's crowded, they're, they're not living necessarily with their kin uh, or with relatives. And so you get a lot of lonely people. Um, you also get a lot of stress just from the environment, just from the noise pollution, from the air pollution. Uh, we know from studies that, that both of those things uh, are bad for our nervous systems, they're bad for our health. Um, people who live uh, you know, under 
airports, for example, or along busy roadways do suffer um, higher rates of cardiovascular disease. They're at higher risk for stroke. Uh, children have more um, learning challenges and sort of slower learning uh, when they're in loud environments. Um, and the, the air pollution as well seems to be taking a toll uh, on things like dementia even. Uh, not to mention uh, problems like asthma. So, so you know, it's a big deal, and I just don't think we've given it kind of enough thought. So let's dive right into how we could potentially ameliorate some of the negative impact of living in the city, um, as, you know, no doubt many of the people listening do. I'm thinking specifically about the impact that even some smaller changes can have, like living in a place that has more trees. There's some pretty stunning research that you talk about um, on how trees impact our well-being. Yeah, there is. There was a really interesting study out of Toronto, which is a city that does have a lot of trees. And researchers looked at the streets that had more trees on them (laughs) than other streets. And and I think if it was more than like 20 trees on your street um, compared to to streets that had way fewer trees, the people who lived on those tree-lined streets had a gain in health outcome equivalent to a $20,000 a year boost in income. So, for example, we know that people with higher incomes tend to be healthier. Um, and yet people with the same income could achieve that same level of, of health outcome just by living with more trees. <laughs> so that's pretty interesting. And there's similar research uh, out of the UK, uh, specifically in Scotland, a researcher named Richard Mitchell, who looked at proximity to green space and how close people lived to parks and trees. Uh, and, and all other things being equal, so, so education levels, um, income levels, all those things being equal, the people who lived closer to green space um, have much lower mortality rates. So they're, they're living longer um, and they're suffering from fewer stress-related diseases. And the impacts are actually greatest for people at the low-income side of the scale. So it looks like um, for, for more disadvantaged neighborhoods, more disadvantaged populations, that health gain and that stress reduction boost of living near green space is actually very significant on a public health scale. So kind of speaking of nearby parks, you also write about the positive effects of walking in nature, which seems to have a positive impact on so many different things, on memory, on attention, on creativity. Um, You know, and we're not talking about necessarily walking in the mountains, right? Even just a decent sized city park will do. Can you Talk a little bit about some of the stuff that you research specifically around walking. Yes, um, I can. And it, it is kind of encouraging uh, because there are a number of studies that, that will send subjects out to walk along a city park. Uh, you know, not a spectacular wilderness by any means, <laughs> but a place where there are birds flying around and greenery and maybe some, you know, water features or, or pretty sky views or clouds or whatever. And I'm really interested on the uh, effects, not only on cognition, I mean, you mentioned working memory and, and creativity, but on depression specifically. Um, and so it looks like if you walk for, according to one study uh, in Palo Alto, if you walk for 90 minutes, you can really deactivate part of your brain that's associated with a negative thinking. And the, the uh, psychologist who performed that study, Greg Ratman, also sent us kind of a control group to walk along a city street for 90 minutes. And he really only saw that reduction in negative thinking in the nature walkers. So there was something about being in kind of, you know, a more nature setting that that really calmed 
that frontal cortex part of their brain called the subgenual prefrontal cortex that's associated with ruminative thinking or sort of where you're replaying negative thoughts over and over again. And I've certainly experienced this and, and probably a lot of your listeners have too. When you go for kind of a longish walk, um, you know, you are eventually pulled out <laughs> of your own sort of inner drama and you open up, you know, to the sensory environment where you find yourself. And if it's a pleasant sensory environment, like a nature setting, you know, you, you notice things outside of yourself. You'll notice the butterflies flitting about. You'll notice, you know, maybe a nesting pair of hawks or a great blue heron flying by you. You know, and these are creatures that, that live in our cities. Um, so, so it is possible to experience, you know, small moments of awe, the positive emotion of awe, um, or just the fascination, sort of gentle fascination and kind of low-level stimulation of being in nature that, that really does seem to be so good for our emotional state. Well, I want to come back to awe a little bit later, but correct me if I'm wrong, I feel like when I was reading this, some of these studies um, you were saying had a particularly strong impact on women, and I think it was middle-aged women in particular, which is, I know also, not middle-aged women, but just women in general tend to ruminate more than men. Was there kind of an even more positive impact there? It looks like there is some indication that nature does seem to differentially benefit women. And, and part of that is that women are starting out a little worse off. Um, you mentioned middle-aged women. Uh, yeah, I mean, they do have higher rates of depression. They certainly have higher rates of medication for depression and anxiety. In the U.S., um, women in their 40s and 50s uh, are prescribed you know, antidepressants at a rate of like one in four, one in four women, which I find yeah. absolutely astounding. And we know that unfortunately in adolescent girls as well, girls are at much higher risk for depression and anxiety and suicide. Um, you know, so, so the problems confronting women and girls, I think are, you know, something we need to be taking a look at and addressing, but specifically, you know, how to kind of improve outcomes in those populations, um, how to prevent depression, how to combat anxiety. It looks like time outside, um, as for girls, adventure sports, uh, you know, seems to be something that, that is incredibly beneficial to them, um, kind of, you know, gets them away from the Instagram hall of mirrors <laughs> and in an environment where they're kind of using their bodies and kind of, um, you know, appreciating their strength and their physicality, learning new skill rather than just kind of fixating on how they look, you know, which is how society kind of wants us to feel all the time. Mm -hmm. um, and then, and then some of the studies for stress in women show that, uh, in women who live closer to green space, uh, they seem to recover their kind of cortisol, a healthier cortisol or stress profile, um, just more, more easily than the men do. So when they are exposed to nature, it, it does seem to help them out um, in a way, maybe even more than it helps men out. We kind of glossed over it, but in terms of the sort of creativity piece, I know that there's some interesting research around walking increasing uh, divergent creativity. So sort of, you know, we'll say blue sky thinking and sort of some of those aha moments. Is that correct? Well, it actually looks like it, it can improve convergent creativity, which is um, where there's kind of one correct answer for a creative problem. So for example, word problems. Um, there are a couple of studies that, that gave participants word problems before and after a three or four day wilderness trip. And both of these studies, there's one in the Boundary Waters in Minnesota looking at canoeists uh, and another looking at backpackers on an hour bound program in Utah by a different neuroscientist. Both showed us really dramatic 50% increase 
in uh, this kind of creativity where there's one answer for a question. So for example, it would be mm -hmm. like a word problem where you're given three words and you have to find the fourth word that kind of links them all together. Uh, and that combined with what we're seeing in terms of, um, you know, a, a boost in short-term memory, for example, where you have to memorize a series of digits um, and recite them backwards. <laughs> um, again, that improves, improves dramatically after even a 30 or 40 minute walk outside of nature. And so, the, mm -hmm. you know, I think the interesting question is why? Like, why is this happening? And what psychologists and neuroscientists are kind of honing in on is that when we're outside, our, our kind of task-oriented brain, our frontal cortex is getting a little bit of a break, you know, just like an overused muscle. Um, when we're inundated mm -hmm. by, you know, information, by emails, um, by our, our um, phone, <laughs> you know, texting and beeping at us all day long, and we have all these tasks to solve one after another, uh, it's fatiguing. You know, even subconsciously, we get like a little bit grumpy, perhaps. And when we're outside, just that stimulation really slows down. That frontal cortex can get a break. And then when we go back to these cognitive tasks, um, you know, we're just refreshed and we're sharper. And so how long of a walk do you need to go on for it to have a substantive impact on your mood or your creativity? Wow, that's a great question. <laughs> well, you know, some of these studies show three days. You need, <laughs> you need to be out for three days. So that's, that's kind of um, a tough, you know, nut crack perhaps for a lot of people. Um, but, but, you know, again, some of these studies show 40 minutes. 40 minutes outside, you perform better on a lot of cognitive tasks. Um, there, there are actually studies, there was a study in Australia, I think, that showed um, a micro break uh, of someone performing tasks on a computer and, and, and the subjects just looked outside the window at a green roof for like 40 seconds. And mm -hmm. even after just looking at greenery for 40 seconds, they were able to perform a little bit better on those tasks. So there's, I think there's a wide range of dose, you know, and, and even a little bit of nature can be super helpful, but the more you get, the better. And then of course, I think we also have to acknowledge that there's a lot of individual variation here. So mm -hmm. you know, what might make me feel refreshed might not be enough time to make you feel refreshed. And I'm also, I feel like I'm still a snob about nature. Like I am, <laughs> I love, you know, being on trails where there aren't a lot of people and where there's not mm -hmm. a lot of noise. And that's probably because I spent, you know, two decades living in the Rocky Mountains. Uh, so, so I maybe need a quieter, you know, more pristine environment to feel truly restored, uh, mm -hmm. you know, than someone who's used to living in a city. So I think, you know, I guess one of the takeaway points in my book is that uh, I, I wish that we would all sort of pay a little bit better attention to our own kind of needs uh, and our own particularities at a given point in time and just kind of pay attention to how we feel. So there are some days when, you know, I'm particularly stressed out, I may need a little more time outside. Or if I'm, you know, grieving from something, um, you know, I'm going to even need more wilderness maybe. Uh, and so just like paying attention to, to how we feel good, where we feel good, and, and taking the earbuds out, <laughs> you know, being more present in that space uh, to help us pay attention. I think that's, that's a really key message. When you mentioned this sort of magic number of five hours, um, you know, as, as sort of the, I guess, low bar of how much time we should spend in nature a month to, um, I guess, reap some of the rewards, so to speak. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, sure. That particular figure comes out of a series of studies in Finland where public health researchers uh, are trying to get at the dose question. Um, you know, Finland is a country, like a lot of Western industrialized countries, that's facing increases in depression, 
anxiety, uh, suicide, um, obesity, you know, the sort of the, the problems of living a life indoors. And because it's socialized medicine, they're really interested in preventing some of these problems. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, the, the country's actually putting a lot of resources into studying nature, which is pretty interesting. And what the researchers there have come up with is this very specific <laughs> sort of minimum dose requirement, which is they have found that if you can get out for five hours a month, you can prevent mild depression. And so that translates to about 30 or 40 minutes twice a week. It's time to take a short break to thank our sponsors, but stay tuned because afterwards we'll get into the Japanese art of forest bathing and why experiencing awe in nature makes you feel like you have more time. And who doesn't want to have more time? This episode was brought to you by SaneBox. People who know me well know that I am passionate about email. Or rather, I am passionate about how much I despise email as a workplace distraction, one that eats up great gobs of our attention, which could be better spent on more meaningful work. So the question is, what would you do if you got that time and attention back? What would you do with two more hours each week? What about four more hours? That's how much time SaneBox saves their average user every single week. With just a few clicks, SaneBox automatically gets your email under control and makes keeping it that way forever super easy. It also has some sweet features like one-click unsubscribe, which sends annoying emails into the aptly named black hole, and automatic tracking of messages that haven't received replies yet, so you can see what needs following up. See how SaneBox can help you reclaim your time and attention with a free two-week trial. Visit SaneBox.com slash hurry slowly today to start your free trial and get a $25 credit. That's S-A-N-E-B-O-X dot com slash hurry slowly. You mentioned earbuds before. I mean, how much does, say, talking on the phone while I'm walking in the park or, you know, having my phone on me while I'm going for a hike and getting text messages, how much does that counteract the positive effects? Yeah, it turns out it counteracts it quite a bit. So, you know, once again, it depends on your particular uh, needs, you know, at the time. If you're, if you're asked to just get a really strong aerobic workout, that's your main goal. That's all you need. You know, great. Listen to a play- playlist on your podcast. Fine. But if you're like a lot of us out for sort of a little bit of stress recovery, uh, you know, a little bit of restorative, um, you know, uh, fabulousness, then yeah, you get a much bigger bang for your buck if you take out your earbuds. Um, there's, there was a study in Utah that showed that people who walked through a beautiful arboretum um, but talked on their phone basically... Um, performed as badly on recognition tasks as people who never took the walk at all. So in other words, they weren't noticing anything in their environment and they really weren't getting anything out of it. It looks like to really get the full kind of nervous system, um, you know, restorative benefits of nature, you really need to be engaging all of your senses. So that's something that's come out of research in Japan, that if you can really like pay attention to what you're seeing, what you're smelling, what you're hearing, you know, the, the, the feel of the breeze on your cheek or the ground under your feet, that is a shortcut to your nervous system just getting super happy and super relaxed. Yeah, and I was really intrigued in particular by some of the research out of Japan and that, yeah, talking about natural outdoor environments and how they're really one of the only places where we engage all five senses and are thus fully physically alive in a way that, you know, we maybe very much aren't when we're sitting at home in front of a laptop or something like that. 
Yeah, exactly. And, and, and I think those effects are really seen, uh, you know, in, in the measurements and in the tests they're doing. So, so yes, people report feeling more vital or feeling, you know, more vigor and f- feeling like they're in a better mood. But you actually also see after measuring them that they have a drop in blood pressure, uh, a drop in heart rate, sort of a different kind of um, pattern to their heart rate variability that shows kind of better response to stress, um, and also um, lower cortisol levels. So pretty intriguing stuff. That, and, that, and that's after really just even 15 or 20 minutes of being outside. Yeah, and they had some pretty uh, interesting things going on in Japan in terms of the forest bathing and so forth. I was amused by some of the terms that they were using. Yeah, forest bathing is a funny term, and and people are actually starting to use it in this country too now. There's like a forest bathing certification program, you know, where you can get trained to be a forest bathing ranger. <laughs> and and yeah, all that really means is kind of opening up all of your senses. Uh, to being outside. And there are a lot of little tricks you can learn to kind of be more mindful, um, you know, in a particular environment, um, you know, to really focus in on bird song, for example, um, little, little tricks you can do. I, I actually love to grab um, pieces of like evergreen needles and I crumble them up and I smell them. And I, I feel like that gives me this kind of like instant transporting to a kind of more relaxed space. Yeah, well, so I'm actually sitting here while I'm chatting with you with a wooden diffuser made in Japan oh, wow. sitting on my desk <laughs> that has the scent of uh, koyamaki and hiroki trees wafting out of it. Oh, there you go. How do you feel? <laughs> I feel good. So I was pleased to read, you know, in your book that, that aromatherapy can be extremely effective for health and alertness and creativity. I found some of that to be some of the most surprising research um, in the book. Can you elaborate on that stuff a little bit more? Sure. In Japan and also South Korea, where I visited, there are a lot of Hinoki cypress forests. Um, some of these were planted. Um, populations are just, they really like these trees. They like the way they smell. They're, it's a very invigorating smell. It's kind of like, you know, Christmas tree meets vapor rub. <laughs> these trees give off a lot of chemicals that are very kind of redolent and wonderful. And it looks like not only do these kind of trigger feelings of vitality and calm in us, but uh, it looks like, according to some research, that they actually boost our immune cells, which is really fascinating. Um, these chemicals coming off the trees are antimicrobial. They're antibacterial. Um, they, the trees put them out in order to you know, prevent attack by insects, for example. Uh, and, and there could be some way they're also interacting with human cells um, you know, in a way that helps us fight disease as well. So it's pretty interesting. And is that just very specific to the Hinoki tree or is it sort of pine trees in general? That's a good question. I think the researchers there are looking at a bunch of compounds. Many of these pine trees um, give off similar compounds or sort of like turpentine kinds of chemicals. Um, there are lots of, lots of chemicals that a lot, many trees have in common. Um, so I think they're looking at a whole host of them. I think they're just particularly fond of the Hinoki tree because they have so many of them around. <laughs> but there's, there's another layer to this too, which is just that when you're in a forest where there's biodiversity, you know, there's just a greater number of kind of healthy bacteria floating around. You know, this mm. is, these are just bacteria rich environments and they're, they're, they tend to be sort of a lot of healthy bacteria. And, and in fact, researchers have looked at kids who go to forest kindergartens, you know, where they're outside all day and have compared like the microbacteria on their skin to the microbacteria on the skin of kids who go to urban playgrounds. Uh, and there's a lot less diversity, I know, of course, on the urban kids. And, and in fact, you see some of this correlated with um, 
incidence of, of asthma and skin diseases, that the kids who actually go to the forest schools, you know, they get fewer colds, they have fewer skin diseases, and they have lower rates of asthma. So uh, I think it's pretty intriguing. Yeah, that's amazing. When you were also talking about when you went to Singapore, the hospital, describing a particular hospital there, which had a lot of greenery and a lot of like open air elements to it and how hospitals that kind of have more open air and I'm not sure potentially greenery tend to be actually um, healthier as well, no? Yes, that there are some studies that indicate that uh, that there are sort of you know more healthy bacteria around when you can get fresh air. You know, Florence Nightingale wrote about this 150 years ago. She wrote about the importance of giving her patients fresh air, opening the windows, letting sunlight in. She said that really ill patients were like plants, and that they turned their heads to the light. You know, that there was something about that natural daylight that they were craving, which is fascinating. And, and then there are also some really interesting studies just showing that fewer mistakes are made in hospitals where when the nursing staff can take a break in a nature garden, for example. Hmm. Um, so it's good for the nursing staff, you know, to kind of reduce their stress levels as well. We know that that medical error, <laughs> you know, hospital error is actually a quite a shockingly large, um, you know, percentage of, of fatalities in in hospitals. So anything we can do to get the doctors and nurses to feel also like they, they can be sharper <laughs> and, and less stressed is, is good for the patient. So I want to come back. You mentioned um, the idea of awe before, and I wanted to come back to that concept. Um, you know, we've been talking about taking walks in city parks or forests, but there's also, um, you know, some benefit to getting out into the sort of deeper richer sort of, you know, three day week long, you know, nature type journeys where you're going to see a big vista or you're going to stand on the edge of a canyon and really feel this sense of awe, which has kind of all of these benefits around, you know, feeling like you have more time and generosity. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, I'm really fascinated by the science of awe. You know, awe is one of our positive emotions, but it's one that's been less studied than the others. Um, I think we tend to think of it sometimes in a religious context, you know, that we experience awe when we're in a large cathedral or, you know, in the presence of, you know, just something kind of um, bigger than ourselves. But it turns out that 70% of the time that people experience awe, it's from being outside in nature. Uh, And so there's some really interesting studies for example, showing subjects pictures of really beautiful nature, like waterfalls or whales jumping out of the ocean, and then showing them pictures from more suburban or urban settings, and then having them do a series of of tests or tasks. And after looking at beautiful pictures, the subjects behave much more generously. For example, they fold more paper cranes to benefit earthquake victims or tsunami victims. Um, or in psychology games, they'll, they'll sort of give away more lottery tickets <laughs> you know, than people who aren't looking at the beautiful nature pictures. And then some of the experiments have been done in the field also, where um, researchers will take students, for example, to look at a, uh, a tall grove of trees one of the tallest stands of hardwood trees on the UC Berkeley campus, just for one minute, gaze up at those trees for one minute, Um, take another group to gaze up at a tall building for one minute, 
and then in each scenario, a research tech sort of accidentally drops, accidentally, in quotes, drops a box of pens in front of the students and then counts how many pens they help pick up. And, and the students who've been looking at the trees like pick up statistically significantly more pens than the ones who looked at the building. So there's, there's something about experiencing awe that seems to make us more kind of community-oriented, a little bit less selfish, a little more altruistic. Uh, and, and this is, in fact, one of the reasons why I think religions have, have capitalized you know, on these emotions of awe, because it, mm-hmm. it does make us kind of feel like we're more of a part of a community. And can you talk a little bit about the time piece in relation to that? I think one of my favorite phrases from the book was uh, time famine. Mm. One of the researchers used that term when she was talking about her research around awe. Yeah, there is a researcher who, who also, again, from showing, I think, subjects videos of nature, found that, that people who looked at these kind of more spectacular, beautiful things, scenes and settings, um, had a greater perception of the expansion of time. So they just felt like they had more time, which in itself is this incredible stress release because we all feel like we don't have enough time. We, have, we do experience a time famine. It's kind of one of our most constrained resources, right? And so anything that can make us feel like we have a little more time and we're a little less hurried, a little less hassled, can really kind of change our mood and outlook, you know, really for the rest of the day. Tell me about this concept of the nature pyramid. Yeah, so I'm, like you, I'm interested in this question of nature dose, you know, how much do we need? And I came across this construct by an urban planner, uh, really uh, popularized by him. Uh, His name is Tim Beatley at the University of Virginia. And he uses this kind of schema of a nature pyramid. It's like the food pyramid. You know, it's just a way to think about our allocation of nature. So at Mm -hmm. at the bottom, at the sort of base of this pyramid, like the bread and butter of our nature access is really our nearby nature. It's our urban nature where we live. So it's the trees outside our windows. It's even maybe potted plants in our house. Um, it's our it's our city parks, you know, where we can um, you know spend a little bit of time, um, and we need that. We really need those micro bursts of nature to just kind of help us get get through the day. And then, kind of the middle of the pyramid are these more intentional visits, longer visits to nature. Um, so that would be like the regional parks or spending more hours uh, in a green setting. Um, that seems to help us um, again with our you know creativity, um, our stress levels. Um, grief a little bit, you know, um, you certainly, I, I love in Washington, I see, I see lots of families out picnicking. I see them fishing in the Potomac river. Uh, you know, it's good for family bonding and for social bonding. And then at the top of the pyramid, you know, are these kind of rarer, but also important doses of wilderness. You know, maybe we can do that trip once a year where we're spending a few days at a time outside. Um, or maybe some kids will only get that, you know, once during a childhood. But it's an experience that can potentially change their lives um, and stay with them for a long time and, and, and really help people also recover from, um, for example, trauma, um, PTSD. I spent some time with some veterans in the wilderness, um, and it, it really seemed to make a huge difference um, to their nervous systems. Uh, and to their ability to kind of bond, uh, you know, with each other and stay in their more conventional therapy programs. So it was kind of like this this adjunct therapy that that also seemed to be incredibly important. And would you say that the benefits are sort of, I guess, increased kind of exponentially up the pyramid? Yeah, I mean, it does look like there is this dose curve that the more nature we get, the better. But I also think that it, it depends on what we need. You know, if we're reco- mm-hmm. if we really are recovering from grief, for example, God, we just are going to need that time in wilderness more. Or if we have like a huge life problem to figure out, um, 
you know, if, if we're just out to kind of like be in a better mood, you know, and be a little sharper at work, then, then yeah, no, the nearby nature may be just fine. So the book is punctuated by your own kind of frustrations of moving from Boulder, Colorado to D.C. Um, yes, and one, one gets the yeah, one gets the impression you really don't like D.C. Um, <laughs> so how did writing the book kind of change the way that you live in the city with, you know, much more limited access to nature? Good question. I mean, there are a lot of things I really love about D.C., <laughs> but I do miss my nature connection. So, yeah, I've had to learn how to feel connected to nature in a city like a lot of us, you know, have to have to figure that out. And for me, what it's meant is, um, you know, spending more time in the parks, like making a bigger effort to, to really, you know, get sort of out, off the pavement mm-hmm. <laughs> and out of the noisy streets. Into Washington it has these amazing parks, as do many American cities. We're so lucky that way. Um, and then when I'm when I'm out in those parks, I feel like I interact with the nature a little bit differently than I used to. I really do take my earbuds out. I try not to look at my phone. <laughs> I try to be mm-hmm. present, you know, in that environment. I love to take my my kids out. You know, I make a big effort to get them outside. Um, I noticed when, when they were little that when I got my kids outside, they would stop arguing, you know, and start playing together. And, you know, like throwing rocks in the river or building a fort or, you know, going on some exploration, climbing trees. You know, there's there's something about that free play and exploration. Um, and children can teach us how to do it. They can remind us how to do that. Mm-hmm. Sort of just really be present and be playful. Um, and so, I've, you know, I've tried to access all that more in my in my city life. And I think that I have largely succeeded. I feel, you know, like I, I'm happier now and how I, how I live in DC. Oh, the other thing I really like to do is I have a dog and I take her out in the evenings, you know, after dinner. And, and sometimes it's really dark out and, and uh, I, you know, I just like check in and what the moon is doing. And, you know, maybe I'll see a couple of stars or maybe I'll catch a little bit of sunset. Um, you know, and, and so there's this sense of, um, you know, just being, part of natural systems, uh, mm-hmm. the cosmic, you know, time, time clock of the universe. That's, that's also kind of, um, it's just neat. And it, it, it seems to help me sleep better as well, just to like check in with the darkness, you know, which so few of mm-hmm. us experience. There's something about the darkness that really helps reset our kind of, um, you know, our, our melatonin, for example, uh, that helps us sleep. I love that phrase checking in with the darkness. Because that's what spending time in nature is really all about. It's about checking back into, quite literally, our natural rhythms. And in that way, it's a form of checking in with ourselves. As Florence said at the top of the interview, living in an urban environment may seem normal to many of us, but it is a very new normal, one that our animal bodies may not yet be entirely used to, one that they may never be used to. Cities provide a level of stimulation through sight and sound and speed that takes a lot of energy and effort to process. Which is why we need to leave the hustle and bustle behind sometimes, to step into a different space where you can hike under a tree canopy or float peacefully in a lake or just lay down in the grass, put your arms behind your head and watch the clouds float by in the sky. When was the last time you did that? If you can't remember, it might be time.
When I join you next week, I'll be in conversation with Craig Maud, a writer and designer who speaks eloquently about how technology has changed the quality of our attention. We'll be talking about why smartphones are so uniquely addictive and distracting, and how taking regular breaks from technology can allow us to defrag our minds and regain control over our attention. We'll also be discussing Craig's recent 10-day Vipassana meditation retreat, which started out in agony and ended in amazement. It was a deeply thoughtful and, for me, transformational conversation. Tune in to find out why. If you'd like me to drop you a line when a new episode comes out, you can sign up for the Hurry Slowly newsletter at the podcast website at hurryslowly.co. That's hurryslowly.co slash newsletter. And now it's time for a final moment of Zen. What's the best decision you've ever made? I think one of the best decisions I ever made was getting a dog. <laughs> she gets me outside at least twice a day and mm-hmm. uh, she makes me happy. You know, she's, she's an example for all of us of, you know, how our kind of natural instincts want to be outside and want to be playing. You know, she doesn't want to be cooped up in a house really any more than, than humans do. <laughs> and we forget that, that being cooped up in an apartment building or a city is not really our natural state. And, and I think mm-hmm. dogs kind of remind us of that. This show was produced by Matt Susich with emotional support from his adorable dog, Mabel. I'm sure getting her was one of the best decisions he's ever made. Devin Craig Johnson created our theme song entitled Calm Revelation. If you dug this episode of Hurry Slowly, and especially if you think you might change your behavior because of it, please leave us a glowing review on iTunes or just tell a friend about the podcast. Every recommendation counts and it helps us keep making the show. Thanks for listening. And remember, slow and steady wins the race.